Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 92. The ascription tells us that this psalm was intended to be sung on the Sabbath. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was obviously supposed to be more than merely a day of rest. It was a day for gathering and for singing and for making music and for being glad in the presence of the Lord. We don't know who wrote this psalm, and we don't know when it was written. In terms of introduction, not much more can be said than what was said by W.S. Plumer. It is a song of praise. Praise for God's works, especially works of creation, providence, and redemption, though providence is prominent, closed quote. As to the structure of the psalm, if there is one, it isn't terribly obvious. Most of the commentaries on my shelf suggest varying ways of dividing it up. Some see the first three verses as a hymn of praise, followed by a hymn of thanksgiving in the next 12 verses. But I'm not sure that there is much of a distinction between praise and thanksgiving in the mind of the psalmist, and so perhaps it is best to just think of it as a hymn of thanksgiving and praise for who God is and what he has done and will do to save his people and to establish his kingdom of righteousness upon the earth. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription and moving on to verse 1. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. Again, as I mentioned, I'm not sure how much structure there is here or how many parts we're supposed to be seeing. The whole psalm seems of a piece. The one bit of structure that I do see is an inclusio, consisting of these two uses of the verb declare. The first here in verse 2 at the beginning, and then the second in verse 15 at the end. This is a rather common Hebrew technique that we might refer to as bookending. In essence, the use of this identical verb at the beginning and then again at the end of the psalm positions the whole as a contained unit. All of Psalm 92 might be considered an ode to the good works of God. And everything these bookends contain is a response to the good works of God. And that's what worship is fundamentally. It is a response to who God is and what God does. And that's why I said earlier, I'm not sure that there is much of a difference in the Hebrew mind between thanksgiving and praise. The two are substantially overlapping concepts. Praise is the glad response of the believer to the good and glorious works of the Lord. And this is something that the true believer is very eager to do. Martin Luther says here, Oh, what is sweeter than to know God aright by his word and by true faith, to acknowledge his infinite mercies, to give thanks unto him joyfully and adoringly with every chord and string of our hearts, to proclaim and praise him unceasingly with a full heart 
and a full mouth, closed quote. And we would want to add, and Luther would surely agree, with instrument in hand. Luther himself was a capable musician, and the psalmist here assumes musical accompaniment. I have never understood folks who look down on instrumentation in worship. If that's your conviction, just be aware that you didn't get that from the Bible. That's coming out of your own personality, and you should probably have that looked at. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises. It's good to make music with the lute, the harp, and the lyre. Verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Now, remember, this is a psalm for the Sabbath. That is to say, it is part of the regular weekly worship of the Old Testament church. And therefore, I think there's an argument to be made that gladness ought to be the default tone of worship within the covenant community, Old Testament and New. Now, of course, there are minor keys also, as it were, that should have their place in our worship. But the major key ought to be joy and gratitude in the works of the Lord. I confess that I sometimes struggle with the tone and feel of worship in the contemporary church. It often feels defeatist and downcast, and everyone seems sad and anxious and unsettled. And there is space for that, but I'm just saying that I don't often feel like that, and I struggle to connect with song after song after song exploring that. Nine days out of ten, I just wake up glad. I am shocked that the Lord has loved me. I am surprised that he has been so gracious and patient with me. I am awed by the lengths that God went to redeem me. And so I'm just glad. I'm I'm just happy and thankful and hoping for some help in expressing that. That's how I wake up in the morning. and, And that is the attitude of my heart most days when I come in through the front doors of my church for corporate worship. I'm looking for songs that help me express my joy and my gratitude and my gladness in the great and awesome works of the Lord. And it seems to me that the psalmist and I are on the same page here. He says in verse 5, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. I love what Derek Kidner says here. He says, to look up in true worship, as in verses 1 to 4, is to be made not only glad, but thoughtful, awed by the scale of God's design. By contrast, to be blind to all this is to become like the beasts that perish, closed quote. And I resonate with that sense as well. When I come into church to worship, I expect to lift my voice in glad expressions of gratitude and joy to my Creator and Redeemer. And I expect to feel a sense of awe as we open the Word together and consider the wisdom and the majesty of Almighty God. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So don't tell me what you think I want to hear and don't Parrot the so-called wisdom of the culture. Give me the mind of God. Open the scriptures. Bring the book that I might be humbled and chastened and awestruck by the scale of God's design. Speak to me of who God is and read to me of 
how God moves to establish his justice in all the earth. And that's where the psalmist goes next in verse 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. One of the things that I find very interesting as I read the Bible, and particularly as I read the Psalms, is how much people in the Bible looked forward to the final judgment. Christians today don't tend to look forward to final judgment. We are typically afraid of final judgment, even though we expect to survive final judgment because we are covered in the blood of Christ and because we cling to verses such as Romans 8.1, which promises that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and so we do expect to survive final judgment, but it definitely does not seem like we are looking forward to it, whereas it cannot be denied that the Old Testament saints very much were. They longed for the final judgment, for that would be the time when all evildoers would be cast down and all those who trust in the Lord would be raised up. So why wouldn't you look forward to that? The psalmist is dreaming of that in this psalm. He sees the enemies of God being cast down and scattered and all their ill-gotten gain redistributed to the poor and faithful of the Lord. Who wouldn't want to see that? It sounds good to me. In verse 11, he says that he has already seen in his personal experiences anticipations of that. And that confirms him even more in his certainty that the day of final judgment is going to be a good day. The wicked will be plucked up and removed from the garden of God's good creation once and for all. And the righteous will shine like the stars in the kingdom of their father forever. That's what he says in verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And of course, this reminds us a great deal of Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we are told that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And that is the worldview of the psalmist. He believes that the seed of God endures in the true believer and produces fruit in this life that endures and flourishes even into the next. I love what he says in verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. David Dixon says here, True believers shall still persevere, and the decay of the outward man shall not hinder the renewing of their inward man day by day, and their last works shall be better than their first. Closed quote. Amen and amen. God, make it so in me, and make it so in all of us. May we arrive at the gates of the celestial city in the full bloom and flower of vital faith. Thanks be to God.
The RMM Bible Reading Plan has us reading two psalms today, so if your Bible is open in front of you, leave it open now to Psalm 93. This is a short psalm, just five verses long. It begins a section of the Psalter that some scholars believe was originally an independent unit. Psalms 93 to 100 together explore the theme of Yahweh's kingship over all creation. So, for example, J. Alec Machir, who understands Psalm 93 as the first psalm in this series of psalms, says here, Psalm 93 asserts and then pictures Yahweh's worldwide kingship, the turbulent world seen as the restless sea with its breakers. Close quote. This entire collection may have been commissioned for some particular festival in the Old Testament, such as an enthronement festival, or perhaps for the dedication of the temple. But if that is so, then we have no record of it. All we can say for sure is that in the second temple period, it was regularly sung by the Jewish people before the Sabbath. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. All the verbs in verse 1 are perfects, meaning that they speak to present and ultimate realities simultaneously. Derek Kidner says here, While his kingship, glory, and might are ever-present facts, this acclamation of them may well be a leap into the future anticipating the great day of the Lord in a series of prophetic perfects, which display already the assurance of things hoped for, closed quote. Many Jewish teachers believed that this psalm was messianic, and it has generally been understood that way by Christian interpreters. Martin Luther states his case clearly, as always, leaving little room for ambiguity. He says, this is a prophecy concerning the spread of the kingdom of Christ, as far and wide as the earth is extended, and its establishment forever. Closed quote. Verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. Willem van Gemmeren helps us understand it. He says, Yahweh is from all eternity, or as the ESV has it, from everlasting. But his rule over earth has a historical dimension long ago, or as the ESV has it, from of old. Therefore, the psalmist associates the throne as established when creation took place, closed quote. Are you seeing that? I realize it's complicated when a commentator is quoting from the NIV and you're reading the ESV. In the first part of the verse there, the psalmist is saying that Yahweh's throne or rule was established from of old, that is, a long time ago. But then he says that Yahweh himself is from everlasting or from eternity, again, depending on your version there. So Yahweh is eternal. That is, he is from beyond and outside of time. And yet his rule is inside time and began at the moment of creation. As I said, that's a very interesting and very theologically rich statement. Verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. 
Now, commentators are divided here as to whether we should understand the sea imagery here as representing the forces of chaos, as they often do in Hebrew literature, or as merely a pictorial way of describing the power of God over nature. However you want to understand that, the point is roughly the same. God is sovereign over all earthly powers, physical, natural, geographical, sub-spiritual, political, biological. Name your power, name your chaos. All is as a sea of glass before the throne of Almighty God. There is no chaos in heaven. There is no contest in heaven. His word reigns. His word tames. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Here, the psalmist is depicting the temple as a sort of embassy of God's eternal kingdom. And he says it ought to look as such. We, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 20. And therefore, as Matthew Henry says fabulously here, nothing better becomes the saints than conformity to God's image and an entire devotedness to his honor, closed quote. Amen and amen. May the Lord make it so, and may it start with me. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.